Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing okay. About as you can be during, um, again, this extended crazy time and universe that we live in, but all is good and I'm going to be doing great in about an hour after we have this conversation. Yeah, so today we have got a really special guest. He is someone that both Steve and I look up to and admire. He's a real role model for those um, trying to make the world a better place and in creative pursuits and athletes. He just has such a wide reach. His name is Rich Roll. My guess is many of you are already familiar with Rich. For those that are not, he is probably most known for his podcast, The Rich Roll Podcast. He is a really solid ultra-endurance athlete in his own right. His book, Finding Ultra, on his transformation from an alcoholic to a national class endurance athlete was a mega bestseller. And he's got a new book out called Voicing Change, which is a beautiful, aesthetically um, fine-tuned coffee table book with highlights from 50 of his favorite podcast interviews that he's conducted over the last decade. Um, so in this conversation, we really go pretty broad. We talk to Rich about his creative practice, about his physical practice, about the mindset of an addict and how that helps him and how it can still get in the way. We talk about what it's like to have a public persona when you have teenage daughters and we talk about the decision as to whether or not to and how to speak up um, in very politically charged times. So we really do hit on everything. Rich is a pro's pro, a master conversationalist. Um, so we hope that you guys enjoy this as much as we do. Let's get to it. Rich, how's it going? We are so thrilled to have you join us today uh, on the podcast. Thanks for having me, you guys. I, uh, I appreciate it. It would be better if we could all be in the same room, but this is the world that we live in. So I will take you in digital form. Yeah, we will, we will take you in digital form too. This is um, podcasting for Steve and I is definitely a second medium to writing so we feel like we are small fish swimming in a pond with like the most, um, I don't want to say killer whale, the most beautiful orca in the podcasting world, uh, which is you. So I think that's a good spot to start. So you've got this beautiful book that just came out, Voicing Change. We're going to get into that. Um, but tell us about the decision to write the book and also... You know, we've talked on and off over the last few years some of the tension that you've had between investing time and energy in writing versus pouring all of that into your podcast. Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, uh, I just want to, I don't want it to go without being noted that I've never been compared to an orca before, but I'll take it. <laughs> and I appreciate that. I think in many ways, you know, I I am the product of being at the right place at the right time. Like of all the things I've done in my life, uh, I ended up by happenstance starting my podcast eight years ago, um, 
prior to its sort of explosion, at, you know, into the medium that it's now become. Um, and just, you know, did a little bit of a, a land grab and have tried to hold on to it and was able to learn how to do it and get better over time when, you know, not that many people were paying attention. And I never would have thought that it would have become what it has become. Uh, and it's been a gift. And I wake up every single day just pinching myself that I get to host this thing and have these incredible conversations. And I certainly don't take it for granted. But to your question, um, I think, you know, when we were together last, we had a conversation about distraction. And, and I've made the point that I've created this podcast as this massive, elaborate distraction so that I can justify not writing, because I fundamentally think of myself as a writer. And yet, it's the one thing that I do the least of. And this book was really uh, an effort to get back to that core, you know, kind of competency that I have. Um, and also, you know, I wanted to honor this journey that I've been on. I wanted to honor all the many guests that I've had on the show and, and you know, provide like this keepsake for the hardcore fans and, and a means of introducing um, what I do and the ideas that I care about to people who are not familiar. And the truth is, you know, I jest that like I haven't been writing, you know, I haven't written a book really since Finding Ultra, but with each and every podcast that I do, I spend a lot of time crafting the blog post for each guest and trying to think of something insightful and unique to say about that person. And so I sort of have been writing this book all along and the process of um, putting it together required going back to all of those blog posts that I had written and reconfiguring them and updating them and making them sort of um, book compatible. But um, the argument could be made that I've kind of been writing this book for eight years and this is the, you know, sort of the byproduct of that. So it's really a love letter to the medium, to, um, to I think, the art form of, of long-form conversation, which is something I, you know, care deeply about and feel like we need now more than ever. And it's been nice to see the medium explode and to see so many people um, kind of cottoning on to the fact that it is powerful and it is something that's missing in our soundbite clickbait culture because it harkens back to human beings sitting around the campfire. And I think we're hardwired to do that. And in this culture of confusion and fake news and acrimony and the, you know, insane election cycle that we've just survived. Uh, I think, you know, nuanced conversation is really the thing that we need now more than ever. You, you know, it's fascinating to hear you say that you think of yourself as a writer first and that podcasting is distracting because it's, you know, if, if you're just, um, come across Rich Roll, you would think maybe the opposite because your podcast has exploded. But, you know, from listening to your podcast, from being on it, it just struck me right now that you kind of take a writer's approach in the sense that your conversations are deep and nuanced. Do you think that coming at it from almost a writer's identity standpoint, like molded your podcast in that way? I don't know that I think about about it consciously in that way, but I think that's probably accurate. And, you know, I think that it is in part a literary 
podcast because so many of the guests like yourselves write books and I read the books and I want to have a conversation about the written word. And, you know, I take the preparation seriously and I try to show up, you know, armed for bear so that I can have the best conversation possible. And there's sort of an, you know, an athlete competitive mindset with that as well. Like showing up for a podcast is sort of like standing up, getting up on the blocks for a swimming race. It's the same kind of butterfly feelings, this idea that you're, um, you know, that, that you're about to, you know, perform, I suppose, whether it's athletically or verbally, but, um, but, you know, I don't, I don't know, like I, writerly, I suppose. Um, but I'm really, when I, when I do it, I'm really just thinking about like, what is, what is the way that I can emotionally connect with whoever I'm talking to? Cause I think that's the most important thing. And perhaps the thing that's overlooked a lot with a lot of hosts, uh, and I trust that the information that's meant to be conveyed will be conveyed as long as I can establish that kind of rapport and that and that bond. Um, but I'm really just trying to, you know, go beneath the surface and figure out what's most important um, about the person that I'm sitting across from. Can you elaborate on how you spend your time during a typical week? if there is such a thing. And the reason I ask in the context for that question is, I remember when a good friend of ours, Alex Hutchinson, was going on your show. And Steve and I had already been on the show. And Alex reached out and called me and said, Hey, what, you know, what should I know about Rich? It's a pretty big show. And I just remember telling Alex that he can go across the whole ocean in width, but he can go super deep and he can go deep on spirituality and he can go deep on science and he can go deep on nutrition and he can go deep on sport. And, you know, you're a few years my senior. My brain is already starting to lose the capacity to hold so much. So how how does it all fit? Um, like, I'm, I'm curious, how do you create the time to absorb all this information, but then also the space to seemingly hold on to it? Because uh, I, 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 you know, we're not just here to um, to sing your praises, but it is definitely something that I find really remarkable. Is that there are a lot of long form podcast hosts that can go a mile wide, and they pretend to be deep, but there's not much depth. And there are a lot of podcast hosts that go really deep and narrow. And to me, you're pretty singular in your ability to do both. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, listen, I've been around the planet a few times. You know, I'm 54 years old. I have a certain, you know, uh, set of life experiences that I think um, benefit me as a podcast host. I think um, going to law school taught me a certain way of thinking and how to kind of prepare and approach a subject matter from an analytical perspective. It taught me how to form arguments. It taught me about rhetoric and language. And I think my experiences as an athlete, you know, inform that aspect of what I do and the kind of guests that I have. And then my experience in addiction and recovery also has been an incredible training ground as a podcast host because you go to these meetings and you sit and you listen to people share their stories from a, a place of, of, you know, great courage and vulnerability uh, and you come to appreciate that. And over time, you start to absorb um, the art of storytelling because I've had to get up and share my story in, the, in a similar way in front of groups of addicts and alcoholics. And little did I know that that would actually 
you know, sort of pay a dividend in terms of how I engage with people on the podcast. Um, and, you know, I've just, I've done a lot of things over the years and I have a lot of varied interests and I'm a curious person. So in the example of Alex, like he kind of, you know, hits a certain bullseye, like he has this scientific background and he has this journalism background and he also understands competitive elite athletics. And, you know, those are all subject matters that I'm very comfortable talking about, you know? And so to your question of like, how do I prepare or what does that look like? Like I read the person's book and if they've done other podcasts, maybe I'll listen to one or two of those. Um, I'll read whatever articles they've written or the press about that person. And I create some version of a loose outline. And so I kind of steep myself in all of that, but then I let it all go. And I try not to look about, look at it or think about it. Like I never come to a conversation with a list of questions. Um, I really try to trust in the preparation and then hold on to it very loosely and be as present as possible for whatever's happening. And it's a, it's kind of a tightrope walk, like, because you, I think you can be too prepared for a guest. Like if you know everything about that person, then you, you're, you're robbing yourself of the opportunity to be surprised in the moment. And then you have to kind of feign, you know, that, and that's not a place that I ever want to be. So I want to be prepared, but I don't want to know everything. And I know what I'm curious about. Um, and I try to pull on those threads and there's with that letting go, there's a trust and a faith. Like, it's always like, oh my God, what if I have a brain fart and I can't think of what the next question is, you know, and I always go through that, but somehow I always manage to, you know, get through it to, to the other side. So I take the preparation aspect of it very seriously. Um, but I also try not to, you know, be too strict about it either. So in the days leading up to a podcast, like, I'll kind of like I'll go out running and I'll queue up one of their podcasts or I'll listen to their book on audiobook and you know that kind of thing. Like it's so it's just sort of permeating my unconscious mind. Um, and Alex was interesting because I remember very well that podcast. I flew to New York City that morning and arrived in the evening and went like straight into the po podcast and met him. And I was very concerned that I was going to be too tired and out of it to be able to match wits with him because he's such a brilliant guy uh, and. I think it came out good, though. That's, you know, that's very endurance athlete-esque, right? You just yeah. talked about putting in the work, then essentially trust your training. And then when it comes down to race time, like, don't try and force it. Just kind of let it go and let it come to you. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, yeah, and I think I learned that as a swimmer. You know, I think those are yeah. skills that I'm not even consciously aware that I'm plying in the moment. But th that's the training that I received as a young person. Yeah, it's just fascinating how these things all come together. I, I, I'm curious, you know, putting in all this work, I think you've had over 500 episodes on your podcast. And then this this book coming out, Voicing Change, had to be kind, kind of a different experience, almost reflecting back on all that that work, that knowledge, almost like an athlete looking back after he's a, accomplished a, a big feat. Um, what was that process like in, in kind of reflecting on, on the knowledge gained or knowledge that you'd forgotten about? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely uh, interesting because I'm somebody who's just constantly moving forward. Like, I never go back and, you know, God forbid I ever have to listen to my own voice on a podcast. Like, I, I don't go back and revisit any of those things. And people will come up to me and say, oh, that thing that 
you talked about with that guy like last year he's like i have no memory of it you know it doesn't it doesn't um you know reside in me it's sort of like a more ephemeral thing like it's this soup in my you know unconscious mind all these lessons that i've learned and experiences that i've had with other people so the process of doing the book really you know compelled me to sit down and go through all of it again and to try to figure out how to curate you know this collection like we decided we're going to highlight 50 people who are those 50 people going to be i wanted it to be you know uh, diverse and and reflect you know the kind of different types of voices that i've had over the years and I, you know, I, I think more than anything, I just felt proud. Like, I was like, wow, I've had all these conversations. But what a gift, like, to be able to sit down with all these amazing people across such a diversity of specialties and, and areas of expertise. Um, and then to try to figure out, like, going through these transcripts and figuring out, like, what the best parts of each, you know, person's message is to put in the book was um, arduous, but it was also a team effort. Like I did not do this book alone. I had a lot of people helping me do it. And that was a different thing too. Like usually writing is a solo affair, but this book was a collaborative effort very much so. Um, and it was, it was, it was gratifying and it was a refresher course on, um, on, you know, all these lessons that I've learned over the years. And I think also, you know, in our culture, we have a tendency to think that something that came out like a week ago is dated and no longer relevant. And to, you know, revisit conversations I had seven years ago and realize like this, I could put this up today. Like it is timeless and this wisdom hasn't changed to be able to resurface, you know, content from the past and bring it back up into, you know, present time it was a cool thing too. And I think the book, you know, does a good job of reflecting that. Yeah, so I'm a big believer in right person, right place, right time for information and insights to really ring. And then, as you said, it kind of all just goes into the subconscious soup or whatever you want to call it. Over the last year, when you were doing the excavation for this book, um, and particularly up to the present moment, are there certain themes or insights that you had forgotten about or were kind of deep in your subconscious that you got reacclimated with and you're like, oh yeah, like this. Um, it's a roundabout way to ask you, you know, if there are favorite gas standard insights, but, um, but I guess that's what I'm getting at here. Yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of organizing principle behind all of it is what I, you know, said earlier, which is that meaningful conversation matters and that, um, that, you know, understanding is bred by, you know, basically creating space and bandwidth to engage somebody from that place of empathy and curiosity. So that, that's kind of like the crowning thing that's been solidified in my mind by revisiting these conversations. In terms of, you know, more specific principles, the other thing that, that really just struck me is that everybody goes through shit in their life. Like nobody escapes obstacles. Nobody gets out of life alive. So whether you're talking to Matthew McConaughey or Edward Norton or Steve Case or any of these people, there is, you know, if you engage them long enough, you realize like they're just human beings like all of us. And despite our inclination to put certain people up on a pedestal and revere them for something they've accomplished in their life, the podcast allows you to humanize everybody and to understand that 
that, you know, we all face the same predicaments and nobody has, you know, everything completely wired. If you're an incredible athlete, then perhaps you had emotional issues or survived abuse or trauma, or you've had financial problems, you know, whatever category in which you excel, there's something else in your life that you struggled with. And I think understanding that and appreciating that allows everybody to, um, you know, find a place of hope for themselves that no matter where they find themselves along this spectrum of life, that change is possible. And there's always, you know, a certain path forward. And that path forward is going to look different for every single person. Um, you know, as, as, I, as, I th- as I know you guys agree with me, there's no shortcut and there's no hack. You know, that's another thing that I feel really strongly about that I know resonates with you guys. And when you talk to all these people, you realize that none of them got to where they are in their lives by dint of any kind of shortcut. They all appreciate how difficult it is to do something special. And they're committed to the evolving, ongoing, never-ending process of of iteration, you know, and and micro progress over time. And they come to understand that none of these things are about the destination. Uh, how do you what, what's your prescription for creating more space for this type of meaningful conversation so more people have access to it? Because on the one hand, I look out and I celebrate your podcast, long-form journalism, uh, as writer of books, books. But more and more, these feel like niche audiences. And there's a lot that's good about that. You can really connect with your readers, your listeners. But I can have a week where I'm in that niche world and then I pop out of it for a half day into the big world and it's just despairing. You know, USA Today is now long form. Twitter is a news source and it's just candy overload. And I'm curious um, if you have any thoughts or ideas on how we can celebrate these niches, but also expand them because, you know, it's something that has certainly been a theme on your show over the last few months. The degradation of the space for meaningful conversation has impacts um, that are, you know, far more social than anything. Right. Well, I think it's like being an endurance athlete. You can't look at things through the lens of short-term gains. Certainly in our media culture, something that is hyperbolic, that is bite-sized, is always going to, you know, sort of rise to the top initially. But there's no depth or resonance with any of that. And I don't think that long-form conversation is ever going to go out of style because of what I said earlier. I think it's hardwired into us as a fundamental need um, as human beings. And the more kind of diffuse culture becomes and the more separated we find ourselves, particularly in the midst of the pandemic, the more I'm seeing people gravitate towards this kind of long-form content. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to you know, capture the fascination of, you know, millions and billions of people doing it. Like you have to kind of understand that you're fighting against the current and the current is very much in favor of this kind of, um, you know, media that we're seeing now where it's all about clickbait stuff. And I think it's reflective of our culture at large and this um, overall shift or movement 
towards the segmentation of media across the board. I mean, gone are the days where a band like the Beatles could arrive in America and the whole world goes crazy. Like we, we don't have like few, fewer and far between are the water cooler moments, whether it's a movie or a television show or a book, because media has become so disintermediated. Like the conglomerates might, you know, make these blockbuster movies, but in between all of that, I think we're seeing the expansion of niche culture across the board where, you know, music, literature, podcasting, television, media of all types and forms are now basically uh, the, the kind of purview of, you know, a multitude of niches. And I don't look at it as good or bad. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't place a value judgment on that. Um, you know, I think that it just is what it is. And embracing that just gives everybody an opportunity to create their own tribe. And it allows the consumer to have far greater choice in what they choose to consume. So, for example, you know, I would think I look at my 12 year old daughter, she's on Spotify and she's pulling up like big band music from the 20s, which is something I never would have done when I was a kid because she has access to the entire canon of music in her hands. So, to the extent that, that you know, these, the, you know, the technology, the supercomputers we carry around our pockets are promoting all kinds of terrible ills. There's also these little, you know, beautiful things that it, that it allows people to do as well. And so, um, you know, I don't concern myself with, you know, how big the audience is or trying to grow it. Like, I just try to focus on, you know, being the best at, 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 at what I do and, and trying to always improve. And I, and I, you know, when I can divorce myself from those externalities that I can't control, um, I end up producing a better show. And, uh, you know, I just think getting into, you know, value judgments about how to shift all of that is going to cause you a lot of suffering. So you've, you've done a great job of almost cultivating your niche and your tribe. I'm wondering how, how has that relationship with your quote unquote tribe changed since um, you started, you know, down this journey? Mm, yeah, I mean, with with growth, you know, you get in, you know, w- when it's when it begins, like you want to respond to every email and you want to reply to every comment. And there is a, a, you know, a much more intimate, direct one on one connection with the audience. But, you know, slowly over time, that becomes untenable unless all you're doing all day long is replying to people. And um, so that's been a challenge for me, and you know, but it, it's okay. I mean, I do what I, I do what I can, and I make peace with that. I think the biggest um, change for me has occurred in the last year. Like I've always put up podcasts that are that are you know kind of evergreen. You know, a, a post that I put up about the microbiome could go up at any time. But when the world started getting really crazy, I felt called. Um, to speak more contemporaneously about matters of the day, which is something I'd never done before. And that was a big risk. But I felt like, what's the point in having this platform if you're not going to talk about the things that, you know, I think are most important? And I would have felt remiss had I not seized that opportunity. And, you know, there's plenty of people who found it to be divisive. And I'm not somebody who courts controversy at all, and yet, you know, Brad, I know you've gone through this with your relationship with Twitter recently. 
um, you know, on some level, it's like it's important to speak your truth and whether people in, and to not get caught up in in the reaction or the response to that. So, as somebody who who is a you know a people pleaser and who is very conflict averse, it was uncomfortable for me. Like this is the this was the moment of getting out of my comfort zone and and you know trying to be a little bit more brave in the content that that I share and I stand by it. And I think I. You know, lost a bunch of people and maybe engendered, you know, greater loyalty from from others. And maybe in the end, it's a wash, but I can sleep at night and I feel like I, you know, did what I could to talk about, you know, the things that I think are important culturally right now. So that let's dive into that a little more, if you don't mind, because I, I think, you know, Brad and I have had this discussion as people who have some sort of platform is, is when do we speak up? When do we, um, you know, share our voice on topics maybe that we're not quote unquote experts on. So it, it, it had to be, you know, a difficult situation and uncomfortable where you're taking the step of traditionally, this is what I've covered. This is like my, what my platform has been, but I feel this need, this urge to, you know, um, stand for things that I, I believe in and to raise my voice to them. What's that? What was that decision like in that moment where you just kind of made the choice to say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to put out a couple podcasts that might be slightly controversial and against the grain of what I've done in the, the past. Yeah, it was uncomfortable, you know, because I want to be liked by everybody. And that's a problem because that's going to cloud my choices about what to talk about. And I don't think that that's healthy. Um, so for me, it was, it was, it was difficult to um, get comfortable with that. And, but that's, that's what I know that's what I need to do. Like that's, that's where the growth is. Right. And as somebody who's got a bunch of kids and I've got young daughters, I was thinking, I want them like when we're on the other side of this or five years down the line to look back and be proud of the stand that their dad took, you know, to not be afraid to have the courage to speak up about things that are important. But it wasn't easy. And listen, you know, there's a lot of other podcast hosts and content creators that are, you know, in this in a similar vein to what I do. And they made the choice not to do that. And I think, you know, I can understand that I'm not casting aspersions on them or judging them. But I think that that's a business decision. They're like, I don't need to unnecessarily divide the audience. These are the things that I talk about. For me personally, the idea of putting up a podcast about, you know, some nutrition thing or fitness thing when we're in the middle of a pandemic and like this crazy, you know, politics are insane. It just felt tone deaf to me. Like I just couldn't stomach the idea of doing it. So, you know, I stepped into it and I did it and 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 I'm glad I did. And I think we have a responsibility as people who, uh, you know, have platforms to, you know, address what's going on and, you know, deal with, you know, the whatever fallout that 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 might ensue. And, you know, I was on the receiving end of a lot of stay in your lane kind of comments from people, because I think peop- there's there's probably a lot of people out there that look at me and think, oh, I'm this vegan hippie Malibu surfer dude. But the truth is. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in an inside-the-beltway family. I worked on the Hill. I went to high school with tons of uh, offspring of politicians. I studied political science. I went to law school. Like, I, this is, you know, this, 
this is probably more my world than I've I've allowed people to know about. And I just, you know, I wanted to be able to speak about it. And not everyone's going to agree. And that's totally okay as well. Mm, yeah, so much of that resonates with um, with me, you know, from looking at my two-and-a-half-year-old son and just thinking, like, I don't really give a shit about how many people are going to buy my book if they disagree with me. I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old son um, all the way up to the the tone deafness. And I guess less tone deaf and more just, you know, if you're in the world of sustainable success and personal growth, well, there's not a social science out there that says that you can have any of that without a solid foundation that comes from a culture that is supportive. And if the culture doesn't have that, well, then talking about the last 10% means nothing because the the first 90% isn't there. Um, yeah, so I get that. Shifting gears um, a little bit, big part of your story is your struggle with alcoholism. And it's something that has come up on so many of your podcasts. And I was going back and preparing for today and listening, and you refer to it differently. But sometimes you say it's like the mind of an addict, or I'm still in recovery, or there's still some of the alcoholic there. And it it tends to come up in conversations around like, A, wanting to be liked, which you just addressed, but also the tension between wanting nothing more than to just check out and take a rest but the inability to be content and the need to stay relevant and keep pushing. And Steve and I wrote a book on this. We were on your podcast about this. We both struggle with the same tension. Um, Could you speak to how you are currently wrestling with that tension? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I'm in a pretty good place right now, but I am suffering from a certain level of loneliness that I'm not used to. Um, when the when the pandemic started, I thought that I was perfectly suited for this type of environment because I can be left alone and I can clear my calendar and no one's going to bug me. Um, but um, I've realized that I'm much more of a social creature than I would have admitted um, nine months ago. And, uh, and I go through these kind of waves of, of, you know, despair and paralysis where despite the fact that I have a lot of exciting things going on and I've got this, get this book coming out and I'm building the studio and everything is great. Um, just feeling, uh, an energy drain to be honest. And I think, you know, probably a lot of people are, and that's compounded by the fact that, that, you know, my community, my recovery community migrated to zoom and meetings are no longer in person and i found myself struggling to get plugged in and excited about that because for me it's about being with people in person whether it's a podcast or an aa meeting and then i started not going to as many zoom meetings and then i started to notice how my behavior uh was starting to slip and i was engaging in more and more of my character defects so my alcoholism is still very much alive, and it requires daily maintenance in order to not behave poorly, to not be selfish and self-seeking and, you know, aggravated and in my ego. And, you know, what I've learned over time is that that slip is imperceptible, 
but it's my natural default state. And left to my own devices, I really do default back to, you know, a lot of, it's not about like, I don't crave drinking. Like, I, I don't think I'm that close to picking up a drink, but what I am close to is just not behaving as well as I know I'm capable of, of you know, I'm not being the person that I know I'm capable of, of being. And in the pandemic, it's just become a little bit harder and uh, more difficult to continually remind myself of that fact. Did that answer your question, though? I don't know if I answered your question. I, I you know, I'll, I'll speak for Brad. Um, but I, th- I think it got at it. I think one thing that I'd follow up on is kind of this idea of that it sounds like wrestling with like contentment uh, versus relevance to a degree. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, you're in a, you're in a position where, you know, you're a public figure, high re- highly relevant COVID hits, all that stuff that you, uh, you address, but like, how do you, how do you kind of uh, balance those two on this contentment versus like staying relevant, staying like earlier, you mentioned pushing towards growth, et cetera. Right. Yeah, now I, I got it. So, yeah, I think I think I'm in a place right now where I'm I'm um pretty okay with just being who I am. Like I I've had enough success now that I realize that more success is not going to make me feel any different than I already do. And I think that helps to quell the inner competitive nature that I have, which can be ferocious, I would admit. Um, you know, five years ago, if I was staring down the barrel of a book launch, it would just be all hands on deck and I would just be a maniac, like, you know, just exploiting every nook and cranny to try to get this book out there and push and push and push as hard as I can. And with this book, I have a totally different relationship with it. It's like, I have a big platform. I'm going to put it out there. We're self-publishing it. I don't need it to, you know, first of all, when you're self-publishing, like lists become irrelevant. We're not even selling it on Amazon. Like if I wanted to really make it go wide, I would put it on Amazon. But I don't, this is not about that. Like this is for the fans and this is for, um, you know, people who want to give it as a gift. It's not the kind of book that's going to sell massively. It's also expensive and it's expensive to ship. Um, So I've entered this this um, phase of, of marketing the book as it's now, you know, in the world with a much healthier perspective. Like, I, you know, I'm going to do a few podcasts. I'm going to talk about it here and there, and it's going to be what it's going to be. And it'll sell and it'll do fine. And I don't shoulder the kind of pressure that I would have a couple of years ago because I understand the success or lack of success of how this book does has no bearing or reflection on who I am as a human being or how I'm going to feel about myself. And I think that's growth. So I look at the kind of opportunities that I now have, which I would have killed for years ago, um, not dispassionately, but from a healthier you know, point of view. Like, this is cool, um, but I don't need this to be okay with myself. Like, I'm cool. And if, if I was to pass away tomorrow, I think I could do it content contentedly. Like, I, I, I feel like I've I've put a good thing out into the world and I don't need to be any more than who I am. Um, and that gives me a greater peace of mind than I think I, I would have had 
some years ago. At the same time, I still am trying to always be better and improve, and there's things I want to do in the world. I just think I'm able to place them in a healthier context than um, than I used to be able to. I want to pull on this thread just the littlest bit more, and um, I'm going to bring a little bit of my own experience in here. So for me, there's a certain kind of texture around putting a big creative project out into the world that I care deeply about that comes with wanting it to reach as many people as it can because I believe in it and I want to start conversations versus wanting it to reach as many people as it can because that will make me feel relevant and good. And what I find is that I almost, if not exclusively, start from the former position. But then, given that we have to, as creators in this day and age, spend a fair amount of time on the internet, I've come to call it the candy shop. And when you're in the candy shop and you're getting that instant feedback and you're seeing sales numbers and people are talking about it or inviting you on their podcast and reviewing it, it's so easy to slip into that mind space where now you want it to do well because you're feeding on that relevant. And our species is wired that way. We're a social creature. Do you have any tips for me, for our listeners that might find themselves in parallel situations in their own world, how to navigate that and how to stop that switch from happening? Um, Mm. Particularly if you're forced... like You have to be in the candy shop to sell something. And yes, you're not on Amazon, but you're still selling it through the internet and through Instagram and Twitter. And... um, yeah, how do you manage like the the force that those mediums tend to put on motivation and drive? It's really about pro- process versus outcome. You know, I I would say initially that it's important to acknowledge how intoxicating it is. Like if you put something out in the world and then, you know, people are interested and give you an opportunity to talk about it, they're validating you and the ego loves that. Give me more of that. You know what I mean? And that's when you start to lose sight of what it is that you're actually trying to do. And I've been there. It's very difficult to create separation between the work and the response to the work, whether that means you're refreshing Amazon to see what your rank is or you're reading comments or you know, you're know uh, trying to see how many views or downloads a certain piece of content gets. These are all very unhealthy behaviors, and I find myself at times powerless to, you know, put the phone down and avoid all of that. So the work is in creating that healthy boundary where you can engage in a conversation like we're having right now, but then walk away from it and not worry about how it's going to land or how many people listen to it or what their you know reaction to it is. So I have to erect, erect, you know barriers between myself and like read like i'm you know i don't read comments on youtube and i don't like as the show grows it's become more important for my well-being to craft those otherwise i'll I'll drive myself insane and i'll be constantly um uh feeding or antagonizing my ego which in you know in both regards is is not a healthy practice so with the understanding that these digital platforms are devised to be so highly addictive. I'm sure you guys saw the, the social dilemma and like we can appreciate just how powerful they are. It becomes incumbent upon us to be more um, responsible and proactive in terms of 
creating those healthy boundaries so we, we don't become you know, victims of our, our lower base impulses. So you mentioned there that this go-round is self-published. And I'm interested to hear you like dive into that decision because wrapped up in that decision, whether you go traditional or self-published as a writer is not only financial considerations, but also ego considerations, right? And you mentioned lists and all those things that tend to matter to writers. And then there's also the the control that um, is different among both. So I'm curious what kind of went into that decision-making process to go the route you did. Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I'm somebody who's, d- who's done my other books with publishing houses, and I've had good experiences working with talented people. It's, you know, it's an up and down thing, as you guys know, <laughs> you know, putting books out with publishers. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the prospect of self-publishing is loaded um, for a couple different reasons. First of all, yes, like if you self-publish, no matter how many books you sell, you're not going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. And you're not going to be able to tell people that you're with Penguin Random House. And that book is not going to be at Barnes & Noble. And all of the trappings of publishing that activate the ego in that way, like the idea of self-publishing brings all of those to the surface. Like, oh my God, like people are going to think that I'm just a hack or I couldn't get a publishing deal or, you know, like it's just a different vibe. But I've had success in the traditional publishing arena and I wanted to do something different here. And there were a lot of reasons why we decided to self-publish this book, one of which is it's an expensive book and I don't think a publishing house would have been able to justify the kind of advance that I would have required for something like this. It wouldn't have made financial sense for them. And this is a book that I can create a series around and put one out every year. And I wanted to be able to control that. And I'm at the point now where I have a team of talented people and we had the capacity to create this in-house and do it from pillar to post, from design all the way through manufacturing and fulfillment. And I wanted to have the experience like that tactile ownership experience of what that would be like. And that What's interesting about that is that it's given me a much deeper personal connection to the product than I would have had had we gone with a publisher because I'm responsible. Like we have to handle customer service and we, you know, we got to do all the stuff that the publishing houses handle. But when I open it up and I look at it, I know that we're the ones that made the decision on every aspect of it from the tiniest element of design to the punctuation and the typeset. Like there were no middlemen in there that I had to run decisions by. There was no, you know, we didn't need to get permission to do any of it. We just did it. And that's pretty cool. And then to not have it on Amazon and say, you have to go to our website to get it um, is also, you know, you're basically just by doing that alone, I'm sure that you're truncating you know how many copies you're going to sell because people are so acclimated to amazon and you know free shipping and the like that they're just not going to get with this book so it's been interesting in that regard um but um but surprisingly like cool like i'm enthusiastic about it because you know i know there's no one else who's working on getting it out into the world other than us And shouldering that responsibility, I think, you know, does give you a deeper sense of ownership over its trajectory. Yeah, well, 
you know, we, we, we said it in our introduction to this show. We'll say it again in the conclusion, but it's, it's another good time to plug the book. Um, for folks that are listening, it's just, it's, it's so chock full of insights. It's aesthetically pleasing. Um, it serves as like a perfect coffee table book. So go to ritual.com and, um, and make sure that you get a copy. Uh, if you're driving, don't do it now. Do it safely when you get back. All right. Um, another interesting point I just wanted to make because I was having this conversation earlier today with my local bookshop. So I love books. I spend so much time reading books. I buy books without thinking twice to my wife's dismay sometimes. And uh, a pledge that I made when we moved to Asheville, which is a, a smaller mountain town in North Carolina, is I'm going to buy all my books from my local bookshop. Even if that means ordering books that are out of print and waiting three weeks for them to track them down, it's fine. It's the least that I can do if I want to be a part of this community. And um, every time I call them, I have to like re-go through my credit card information. And I've noticed like I've been going over to Amazon for the sole purpose that it's like I don't have to re-enter my credit card information. Um, so that just happened today. I was telling my local bookshop, I'm like, hey, is there any way you can save my credit card? Because um, we don't realize how these technologies, like they, there's all these little reasons that, that, that hook us. Um, so just an aside. Yeah, you'd think that, that these, books, these, these bookstores being you know, a dying breed and needing our support, that they could at least try to do something to make it a little bit easier for us to continue to patronize them. Yeah, um, that's what we talked about. So, I mean, and, and, and to their credit, they're often like, you know, running a ship with five staff and they're just trying to keep the doors open. So sure. figuring out how to save a credit card might seem like a Herculean task. But um, yeah, I'm with you 100%. So how many kids are are in your family? I always forget three or four. You got four kids. What are their ages? Um. Tyler and Trapper are my stepsons, and they're 25 and 24. And then we have two daughters. Mathis is 16, and Jaya is 13. And they're all here. The boys had an apartment on the other side of town, and when the pandemic hit, um, they moved back home. So they've been with us since the beginning of this whole thing. So what is it like to have four kids... I don't want to say particularly the two younger girls, but certainly, you know, they're at a stage where like identity is full on forming and they have a dad that's a quasi well-known public figure talking about really deep, intimate stuff. And I know you keep them out of the show and, you know, you're still their dad talking about this stuff. What's that been like for you, um, for them and as a family? It, it's been interesting. I mean, the boys are great. You know, they're 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 men now. You know, like they're they're, <laughs> and they've you know lived. I they've been in my life since they were three and four years old. And and you know they their father passed away, who was Julie's former husband. Um, and they were you know with us through all the difficult times and have seen the growth and the kind of you know w- us going from literally being destitute into now having you know kind of these thriving endeavors and that's been cool because they're old enough to appreciate that and to understand like how much work it took and 
you know, what went into creating something that you care about. And I know that they look back on that time, even though it was very difficult, with, you know, a deep appreciation for what it's going to take in their own lives to manifest their own dreams. And they've said to us, like, it was really because I have a lot of embarrassment and a lot of emasculation around like not being able to pay bills when they were little kids and, you know, not being able to provide at the level that I would have liked to have been. And they're like, yeah, it was hard and it sucked. But you know what? Like, I look back on that and I'm so grateful that we had those experiences because I have such a greater understanding of the fact that nobody owes me anything and I'm going to have to work my butt off to, you know, do what I want to do. They're musicians. So they're involved in their own, you know, creative affairs. And I think that's important in a culture in which there is a lot of entitlement out there and people think that, you know, you're just going to get handed, you know, what you want in life. It's a little trickier with the girls because they didn't develop their awareness until we had a lot of momentum already. And I think what's interesting is, you know, then now me being a dad where I can provide and I am really proud of what I've created. And if we're in town and somebody walks up to me and says, I love the podcast, I used to, and I'm with my daughters, particularly my youngest one, I would feel good, like proud, like, wow, this person who doesn't even know us, like recognizes that I'm doing something valuable to them. And I'm glad that my daughter is able to see that. But what I've learned over time is that she doesn't care about that, nor does she want to have those experiences. She wants my attention focused on her. And so the battle or the evolution for me has been in protecting their privacy and making sure that when I'm with them, they know and feel that I'm with them 100%. Um, and that's new. Like that was something I didn't ever expect to happen, but you know, becomes kind of a, a you know a daily thing with them. But they're not, you know, like Jaya, who's thirteen. Like she doesn't, she's not really all that aware of w- what I do, and um, they don't really care that much. You know, I'm just, I'm just dad. They're not into endurance sports at all. I can tell you that they don't. You know, they're not into most of the stuff that I like to do. Mathis, who's older, she's now old enough to kind of appreciate that I've done something that that people care about, and that's cool. Um, but with the younger one, it's really just about making sure that she understands that she's number one all the time, and all the rest of it is just a distraction or noise. That's really fascinating. Um, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned there that the older boys had got to see, like, the evolution. Do you, do you think of... How do I, did your parenting change at all in order to instill that idea or think about like making that idea of, um, hey, life takes a lot of work, how to develop resilience without, you know, uh, maybe experiencing it firsthand to the same degree, et cetera, on your younger Mm. kids? Yeah, I mean, I think right now, like the, hey, you know, sit down and let me tell you what you need to know about life, like just gets an eye roll from the from the younger girls. Like it's what I've learned is it's so much more about what you do and just leading by example than it is about what you say. So uh, in the case of the girls, it's there's not a lot of, you know, me giving them life lessons verbally, and it's more about how do you conduct yourself throughout the day? Like, do you lose your cool in traffic? Do you, 
you know, show people respect. It's like, that's what they pay attention to. And with the boys, you know, I didn't need to say anything because they lived through it and they saw it and they're, you know, like they don't remember anything I said, but they know very well how we behaved and how we weathered the whole thing. Um, you know, you have this idea when you're a dad that you're going to have these heart to hearts and you're going to sit down and tell your kid, here's what I learned and all of that. And like, you know, I don't know what your experience is, but like mine is that's really not how it's not how it works or it hasn't worked like that yet for me. So I'm going to tie this back to something, um, you said earlier, which is your decision to take the action of, you know, speaking up to things that you felt mattered during this kind of difficult, crazy COVID slash political times. And I think that's like another example of, of where actions matter. And I don't have any kids yet. And Brad has a, a tiny one. Um, so we can't speak from expertise yet at all, but I think it's interesting. You know, I tie it back into my coaching life so much as, they they listen to some of the things that I say when I'm coaching, but it's really like the behaviors and modeling that gets picked up and you don't really realize it until, you know, 10 years down the line, you're at, at one of your former athletes' weddings and they're talking about something that like behavior that you did that you had no idea you were doing. So I think that's such a good tip and advice that I'm going to write it down for when I get to that point eventually. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how that works, right? And it'll be, it'll be that thing that they remember is not the thing that you, you know, would have thought the sweeping score would have come down because you're, you're dropping like the truth bomb. It, It was probably something really, you know, in the moment you thought to be banal and resonated with that person. So you don't, you never know how, something you do or something you say is going to land with another person. You know, I just know that like when I made this decision to kind of, you know, um, speak up a little bit more than I had in the past, I was thinking about my 13 year old daughter, who's a little social justice warrior. And I know what she cares about a lot. And I didn't want her thinking that I didn't participate, you know, meaningfully in this important time. And, you know, that's, she's, she's like the bellwether for me. Um, all right. So let's, let's, let's stay on the, the social political unrest for a minute here. You've had a lot of experience in these deep, meaningful conversations, um, based on those conversations, also your experience in AA. I know that compassion is a really important, if not core value for you. And Compassion meaning like understanding someone's suffering, understanding someone's fear. And I think everyone that listens to this show knows where Steve and I sit. And we understand, at least we try to understand, all the fear and suffering of people that have um, been victim to systemic racism, to climate injustice, all of these things. And... I'm trying more to understand some of the fears that people on the other extreme of the political spectrum have, and it's very challenging. It's super hard. The reason I'm doing it is I want to try not just to make these bold statements that are sometimes driven out of anger or dismay, but to really affect change. So putting your interviewer conversationalist hat on, what do you see as a route to engaging productively 
while also feeling like you're standing up what you believe in. And yes, this can be for folks with massive platforms, but this can also be for someone that just wants to approach their brother-in-law or their uncle or their parent. It's so hard, man. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm right with you in, in trying to really understand, you know, the mindset of somebody who's coming from a very different place than I am. And, uh, and I struggle and I don't do it perfectly. And I don't have the magic bullet answer to that. But I do think um, really the only way is to lead with empathy and to um, respond with tell me more. Right. Like, that's your view. Tell me more. Tell me more about that. Oh, that's interesting. Like, how did you come to that? Did you change your mind or did you always feel like that? Like, what led you to that perspective? And the more that you can opt out or reserve judgment and and come from a place of curiosity, almost like a, you know, a forensic point of view, I think you take you take out an insurance policy or there's a chance that you can bridge some aspect of that gap. And I'm not saying that I'm an expert at it. Like, you know, I, I uh, you know, I'll get a crazy email from somebody who didn't like what I had to say and I'll read it and I'll be like, let me understand where this person is coming from. You know, how do I get my head in t- inside the mind of somebody who just sees the world fundamentally different from me? Um, I think it's skill just like anything else. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, it, 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 it's something that will lead to, uh, you know, immediate understanding between two, two people who are, who are so different. But I don't see any other way forward than to do that. And I do think, you know, recognizing that, that, that you know, if we take anything away from this election, that, you know, we are a divided country. Like, basically, for all intents and purposes, it's pretty much split down the middle in terms of who people voted for. And irrespective of whoever finds their way into the White House, that divide remains. It doesn't go away because suddenly Joe Biden is president. It, it, it persists. And we have to deal with it. Like, and I think for a lot of people, like myself being a, you know, quote unquote, like coastal elite, like, oh my God, like how did so many people, you know, vote for this other guy? Well, this is America, like, and this is this has always been America. So, how do we figure out how to cohere? How can we, you know, establish some level of comedy, you know, as neighbors? And how do we communicate? And I think we need to be mindful of the extent to which social media drives that divide by, you know, fomenting acrimony, um, because it's not just the divide; it's the um, it's the emotional charge that's associated with the divide that I think is the real problem because that's what, that's what creates the breakdown in communication. I think that that divide is what the, the, the emotional charge in the divide is what really foments the breakdown in communication, our ability to talk to each other. So follow up there and have you thought about having people on your podcast that come at a quite different tilt. And I know there's always this trade-off between like giving those voices and those conversations an avenue and also giving sometimes people a platform um, that you might not want to give a platform to. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if that's a thought process that you've gone down. And like someone that comes to mind as I'm just pulling up like iTunes top podcast, Ben Shapiro, very conservative guy, 
always in the top 10 listen to podcasts. Like, does it ever go through your mind that I should invite him on to talk to him? Um, and, you know, we don't have to... Do, you can use him as like uh, an, an illustrative example, not him in particular necessary, but someone like that. It's so tough, man. I mean, certainly I've thought about it as a thought experiment. I've entertained the prospect of bringing somebody on who is, you know, very different politically from me. I just, you know, the reason that I haven't is I, I'm not clear on what that would accomplish. I mean, I certainly don't think that I'm going to change Ben Shapiro's mind, and I don't think he's going to change my mind. And so I question the the point of of you know that kind of conversation. I'm open to it, um, and I'm all and I am also uh, mindful of the platforming argument. I think the platforming argument is problematic, um, but there is something to be said. You know, when when I have maybe 50 guests a year, like, who am I, who are those 50 people? Like, who are the best 50 people that I can find this year to put on my podcast? And understanding that there is a platforming aspect to that, because I'm on some level saying this is worthy of your time and attention. Um, and I just haven't been able to justify in my mind uh, the, the, the wisdom behind doing something like that. I'm open to it under the right circumstances. And, you know, assuming that it could be done in good faith, but I just haven't stumbled across the right person for that kind of conversation, I guess is what I'm saying. So what about on a uh, more practical level, as we'll, we'll call you a master of conversation here? I think one of the things that, you know, our listeners, people I've talked to, Brad and I have had this conversation a lot, is... Um, you almost feel like this need to to, to um, do something, to have some sort of influence, to you know help the world become a less divided place, to reach out and somehow change minds. But taking that to the next step, on okay, if I feel strongly about this what do I do? What kind of advice would you have, Rich, for someone who doesn't have your platform maybe to amplify these ideas, but still feels strongly about, you know, where the world is and wants to, you know, nudge it in a better direction? Right. Well, I think the first thing I would say is that no politician is the answer to our problems. And to the extent that we're all looking externally, to you know, make us feel safe. Not that it's not important who our politicians are, but I think we we you know we're um, we overly invest in the importance of these individuals because they all serve a certain structure and they're all limited by that structure to some degree or another. And I think our time and energy is better spent on interpersonal development. Like if you can take that time and energy and go inward with it so that you can become a more fully actualized, authentic version of who you are by virtue of, you know, whether it's therapy or exercise or some other, you know, mindfulness or some other form of self-care to deepen that connection with yourself so that you, you know, feel good with who you are. Like, I think, you know, we all want everybody else to change, but we're so reluctant to change ourselves, right? And if we can all redirect that energy inward 
and focus on you know self improvement to some regard. And I it's, it's such a I hate that word self improvement, but to the extent that we can place that focus and that onus upon ourselves rather than on other people, I think that puts us in a better place to solve a lot of these problems. Rather than trying to convince somebody else to think differently, why don't you just try to iterate on who you are? Because that's truly the only thing you have control over anyway. And it's the path to the um, self-esteem and the fulfillment and the, the purposeful life and the sense of um, contentedness that perhaps you're lacking and seek the most anyway. Yeah, I think it's so easy to, um, especially now, like to have to create the illusion of, and I'm guilty of this, to create the illusion of doing something by making a post on social media or even just feeling really angry for a period of time when that time could be better spent like volunteering, <laughs> ideally, but also just like taking a walk in your neighborhood on a brisk day. Um, yeah, that's definitely, I think that's so topical for our audience um, because it feels good to be angry and to feel like you're doing something, but you have to ask yourself, like, am I really doing anything? And right. is it going to feel good two hours from now? Right, 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 right. So on the, on, I guess like it's a, it's a slight shift, but on self-care or foundational habits, you know, we've now spoke to you for over an hour and we haven't mentioned movement, even though a lot of people, that's what you're known for still, first and foremost, for your career as an endurance athlete, your story, overcoming addiction, obesity, becoming this really solid endurance athlete. Um, what does is, what is your movement practice look like now? Um, are you still ritual the, you know, Ultraman or are you ritual? I've heard recently, are you going to start deadlifting more than me? Like where, where are you at with movement, both in terms of what you're actually doing? Because I know people always find that interesting. Um, and also just how it fits into your life. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would uh, define myself as a competitive endurance, ultra endurance athlete right now. Like um, my focus is diffuse and on many different things. I stay in contact with movement, though, because that brings me joy. And that's why I pursue it, not just because it's good for me, but because it makes me happy. And I may compete next year or figure out some challenge to do or something like that. But that's become less important to me. So my relationship has evolved from one that has been very rigid and competitive into one that's, uh, you know, kind of um, that I hold a little bit more loosely and um, don't hold myself to such a high standard. So I get out every day and I run or I ride my bike or I go swim. It's a little trickier during COVID to find a pool open to be able to do that. And I've had some back issues that have sidelined the kind of volume that um, I would like to be doing right now. And I've used it as an opportunity to, like you said, do some of the things that I usually don't like to do or shrug off and um, convince myself that I don't have time to do. And that is like the functional strength and being in the weight room. And that's been really interesting. Uh, you know, I put on some mass pretty quickly and then I thought I'm getting too big. Like, I don't want to get this big. Uh, but it's been fun to play with it and to try new and different things and, you know, reconnect with a different kind of version of being an athlete. And I want it to always be fun and fresh. You know, I think if I go out and I run the same trail every day or I, I'm measuring myself against what I was doing 10 years ago, uh, ultimately I'm robbing myself of what's what's so great about, you know, these 
types of sports and the joy that they can bring our lives. And, you know, at 54, it's like, I don't, I don't want to be comparing myself to anyone else or to what I used to be able to do. I just want to be able to have that experience of feeling good in my body. And that's really kind of like how I think about it these days. I love that. I mean, I think in, in sp- endurance sports, that comparison piece looms so large because everything is so measurable. So it can, it can be yeah. so easy to fall down that trap of always judging yourself based on um, prior versions. And as I've aged and shifted into, you know, a, a different form of athlete, as, as you said, in my own career, I can't agree with that more. It's just kind of finding, finding new ways and different ways to still enjoy the things that you love about it. Um, I'm curious though. So that's the, the kind of movement piece. And I know you've got, you know, obviously your own book and the podcast piece, but in between all the researching for your your podcast, do you have any time for reading that is beyond that? And if so, what what recent reads might you uh, recommend? <laughs> yeah, there's there's not a lot of time for that because everybody's got a book, and it's hard for me to rationalize or justify. Um, reading another book when I've got a stack like right next to me of books that I got to get through because of the podcast. It's like, it's like, damn, I'm just never not going to have homework, am I? You know, <laughs> this is the life that I constructed for myself. So I haven't read, I've got some books that I want to read for fun. And uh, like, I've got, I've got Flea's book, Acid for the Children. I really want to read his memoir. I haven't gotten to it yet. So maybe I need to book him on the podcast so that I can justify reading a book that ordinarily I would have just read for fun. Um, but yeah, I tend to, it, it, yeah, I t- it's like there's only so many hours in a day and I've got kids and I've got other things to do. So the the reading just for fun, I mean, I, I listen to tons of podcasts and um, you know maybe I can uh, squeeze some audio books in there that aren't homework related. So, always work to be done. Steve. <laughs> there's there's the real secret behind it is that there is always work yeah. to be done and um, fitting that yeah. stuff in. I can't, you know, I I can't imagine how you uh, how you do all that. So it's it's good to know that uh, some things go by the wayside, just like for the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah, but like a lot of these books that I read for, I mean, it's like I book people on the podcast because I'm interested in them. So, you know, that means that I'm going to be interested in their book, but it just means less novels, you know, less fiction is getting consumed, I guess. What about all-time favorites, Rich, like, you know, books? Um, Because we have a fairly literary listenership. You, you, You mentioned that you're a literary person. Like, what's the... Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Eric Fromm, Tara Brock. Like, what, what are Rich's, you know, top... Give us your top five. Oh, man. Um, putting me on the spot here. I, uh, I might have to get back to you on that because I, I don't want to just, you know, oh, catch her in the rye, you know? Like, I, I, could, I could, like, litter off, like, a string of books, but... Hmm... What has stuck with me? This is Brad, the difficult interviewer. He's going in. I was going to give you out after, um, after the 
No, I think, I, I mean, like, I'm pretty, you know, I, it goes from, you know, leaves of grass to, you know, Tom Wolfe and the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Like, I, I like, I'm not very precious about the reading that I do, and I like all different kinds of things. Um, you know, there's a difference between that kind of book, though, like Hurakami, like I love Hurakami, you know, what I think about when so I think good. about running. The fiction you know, and his there. book on uh, his book on running, I think, is maybe the best sports book ever. I think it's I think it's incredible. Um, everybody should read that book. Uh, you know, the books that have had the most profound impact on my life, though, are different. That would be like, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, The Artist's Way or, you know, uh, the War of Art, like those are very practical books that have profoundly impacted how I live. Um, but that's different from literature. All right, we'll let you off. My um, my little guy, Theo, just busted in the door. And uh, um, <laughs> he's like, I don't care what books Rich reads. Read to me, Dada. <laughs> Yeah, um, you should. So this is as good as a time as any. We could talk to you forever. Um, thank you so much for making time to be with us today, for sharing your insights. Uh, listeners, be sure to grab a copy of Rich's book. We will include it in the show notes. Um, it really is just a wonderful project, Rich. So I hope that you're feeling uh, content and proud. Yeah, thanks, you guys. I appreciate the opportunity to share with you and uh, much respect for the work that you guys are doing. It's definitely uh, a signal in the noise, so keep doing it. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.